Thank you very much, Sherry and worship team. And again, good morning, brothers and sisters who are here. And good morning as well to any joining us online this Sunday morning. Today is the last Sunday of August. I know that will come as a shock to many of you if you haven't been religiously paying attention to your calendars. But indeed, we are at the end of August, probably one of the strangest Augusts that most of us have ever experienced. But by God's grace, he has sustained us and brought us together again for another worship service. And just as a little bit of an aside and kind of a plug for, for the church here, as we transition into this mindset of fall, students starting school, um, rekindling our various programs that we do at the church, Granted, there will be some tweaks to those programs, but they're all restarting again. And kind of trying to figure out what the next number of months looks like, um, it's important for us to maintain our focus. Many of you will remember from my sermon series in James last year that James was regularly warning of the danger of being double-minded. Torn between loyalties, Doubts rooted in a love for the world and its pleasures, but also a love for our God. And the reality is we are either Christ's or we are the world's. There's no fence sitters in God's kingdom. There is no kind of playing the field and figuring out what it is that we want to choose. As we gear up for a very different year as far as school programs and recreational activities and etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, let's use the weirdness of this last number of months as an opportunity to put first things first and it looks like and if it continues to we're going to be encouraged to um, limit the number of different spheres in which particularly our students engage as well as um, our young, young people. And let's really try this year to make decisions that would glorify God, even if that might mean opting out of things that might seem more fun at first. That was my little soapbox this morning, just recognizing as I was uh, preparing that we are hitting that fall season. Um, off my soapbox now, um, today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 18, if you want to stick your thumb in there. But today's passage looks at the implications of Christ being made for a little while lower than the angels. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We looked last time I preached at Christ as man, Christ as the second Adam, human as humans were meant to be. But to make things a little bit more intimate today, we see him as our brother and as our high priest. How does the humanity of Christ intersect with the rest of humankind? Before we get into reading our passage this morning, would you please join with me in a moment of prayer? 
God, we are continually amazed at your sustaining grace in amongst our congregation here at Elk Point Baptist Church. Lord, through all of the twists and turns that this church has seen over the last decades, Lord, you have continued to provide in one way or another from expected ways to very unexpected ways, Lord. And God, we thank you that you are not a God that we can put in a box and assume and anticipate the way that you are going to act on behalf of your people, but Lord, we can rest upon your promises and we can rest upon the fact that you do act on behalf of your people for your own glory and for our good. Lord, we pray as we worship together this morning in the preaching of your word that you would be at work in my heart to to speak your truth to your people and at work in the hearts of those here who are uh, listening and those online, Lord, to make their hearts fertile ground for your word, that it might spring up and bring forth fruit in their lives. Lord, we thank you for these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, we are in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 18. We finished off on verse 9 last week, but our passage today is basically picking up where things left off. So, starting in verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should be the founder, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered... When tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. So two weeks ago, I preached from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And I encouraged each of you to join me in daily looking upon our crown Savior, ever looking forward to the day where we might see everything in subjection to Christ. And also that we might be restored in our ability to serve him as we were originally designed to do. That passage two weeks ago was an exposition of Psalm 8, particularly verses 4 through 6. And today, continuing where we left off, 
But rather than focusing on the transcendence of Christ and the future return of Christ and the return of our place as God's vice regents in creation under the authority of Christ, now we're going to look a little bit more at the in the meantime part of things. What happened and is happening that caused that to be a possibility? Christ's work has been accomplished. He is Lord and all things are subjected to him. But how was that accomplished and how are we able to be included in his work? Like I said last time, we focused a little bit more on the temporary nature of Christ being made for a little while lower than the angels. Today we look more at what was accomplished in the meantime because that, that little while where Christ was made lower than the angels is honestly the pivot point of all history. That is the story of the entire scriptures. For many of us, the Apostles' Creed is something that we would have been made quite familiar with in our younger life. And unfortunately, uh, many of the old creeds and confessions of the church have fallen into disuse as of late. But I would encourage all of us here to take some time and re-examine some of those old Christian creeds and the Apostles' Creed in particular attempts to boil down many of the Apostles' teachings as simply and as succinctly as possible. In the portion regarding Christ, this is what it says. I believe in Jesus Christ, God the Father's only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. In that 30-some years between Christ being conceived by the Holy Spirit and him ascending into heaven, our God was incarnate upon the earth fully God and fully man and in that time literally everything changed for a little while Christ was made lower than the angels so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone and he is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death and this is because it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And I want to point out when the author of Hebrews here says it was fitting, we should recognize that this is just an observant an observance of an existent truth. When I'm sitting on a plane, getting ready to fly, and I see a man kind of rolling his way in down the aisle with one of those humongous, hard-shelled carry-on bags, and he goes to try and put that in the overhead compartment. When I look, I can tell you, and 
everyone sitting there can tell you that is not going to fit. Period. It's not fitting. No questions. It just doesn't. Just like we can also say that any bag that is already in the compartment, it fits. Either the bag fits or it doesn't. What is fitting for God is what God does. He defines what is fitting for himself by what he does. When the author says it was fitting that the Father should make the Son perfect through suffering, this isn't a matter that he's putting up for debate or rendering judgment on. He is recognizing a truth. If we see something that seems to be God's acting out of character, it's like that seems uncharacteristic for a good God of the universe. This is an objection that we regularly get. Well, why would a good God do this? Why would a good God allow suffering? That doesn't seem like something God would do. If we see something, God doing something that would seem unfitting, then the onus is on us to determine where the issue lies in our thinking. Not the other way around. We don't get to determine what is fitting for God. God's already determined what is fitting for God. And it's on us to try and figure out, okay, if that seems unfitting, what's wrong with the way I'm thinking about God? When the Lord of the universe acts, he's acting in a way that is fitting, and when we look upon his actions, we can be tremendously encouraged when we can recognize the way his actions fit with what we know of his character. We can be encouraged that we know God well enough to recognize his character in action when we see God doing something and we go, that, that fits with who I know of God. We can be encouraged to be like, well, I know my God through his word well enough to recognize him at work. And we can also be encouraged that the character of our God is what we call immutable. It is unchanging. He is the eternal I am. Upon him we can rely at all times and in all things. Regardless of whether things are crazy and seem out of control in our world or things are pretty status quo, we can recognize that our God is, is eternal and unchanging and we can rely on him to continue being the God that we know through his word. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things, in, all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That the Father should make the Son perfect through suffering reveals the true character of our God. Here we see his love and compassion and his mercy profoundly on display. But as we read that, there should be kind of a warning flag popping up in our mind. Like, okay, well, if God is making the Son perfect and the Son is God, this is the same Son of whom John stated in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That is the eternal Son. 
But our passage says that he is being made perfect. That should kind of tweak ourselves and go, why, how can he be made perfect? Another beautiful creed of the church is the Nicene Creed. It states that begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of the same essence as the Father. Our Lord Jesus Christ needed no perfecting as he was. He was and is and always will be perfect. What our author is stating here, saying that Christ was being made perfect, he was being made our perfect Savior. He was not being perfected or changed in any way that would change who he was. He was being made our perfect Savior. The eternal word of the same essence as the Father originally would have had no claim as our substitutionary Savior. He would have had no way of identifying with his people. But Philippians 2, that beautiful passage, tells us that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And later in our passage this morning, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus became the perfect Savior for his people, for you and I by enduring the same things that we do. Verse 11 tells us that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Again, there's this duality to what the author of Hebrews is saying. We the sanctified and Christ the sanctifier are of the same source in that we are both human. We are both flesh and blood of Adam's race. Then in another sense, we are of one source because we are both sons of God. Continuing the uh, parallel with John 1, in verse 9 it says, The true light which gives lights to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Pay attention to verse 12 here. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were not born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now remember back to Hebrews 1.5, which when speaking of Christ, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In Christ, we have adoption into the family of the king of the universe. According to Romans 8.16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is why Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He is our brother not only because he condescended being born in the likeness of men, but 
also because those whom the Father foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We have been lifted up from our lowly estate as ruined sinners, enemies of God, and objects of wrath. All descriptions of people who have not trusted in the Lord. These are descriptions of us pre-Christ. Ruined sinners, enemies of God, objects of wrath. But we have been lifted up to become adopted children of the Most High God. Brothers and sisters, co-heirs with the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. This is what was accomplished in that time when Christ was made for a little while lower than the angels. Since therefore we whom God has called share in the flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And in my study I ran across a quote from theologian F.F. Bruce that just blew my mind. He said that if ever death had appeared to be triumphant, it was when Jesus of Nazareth, disowned by the leaders of his nation, abandoned by his disciples, executed by the might of imperial Rome, breathed his last on the cross. If ever a cause was lost, it was his. If ever the powers of evil were victorious, it was then. And yet within a generation, his followers were exultingly proclaiming the crucified Jesus to be the conqueror of death and asserting, like our author here, that by dying he had reduced the erstwhile lord of death to impotence. The keys of death and Hades were henceforth held firmly in Jesus' powerful hand. For he, in the language of his own parable, had invaded the strong man's fortress, disarmed him, bound him fast, and robbed him of his spoil. That comes from Luke 11. This was the unanimous witness of New Testament writers. This was the insurance which nerved martyrs to face death boldly in his name. Where did that come from? The disciples who abandoned and scattered at the crucifixion of their Lord within such a short amount of time all of a sudden were willing to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim him as the one who had died and risen again. Every single one of the apostles were reportedly martyred except for the apostle John burning, stoning, beheading, spearing, crucifixion, inverted crucifixion. These are what awaited these men who had followed Christ. But according to our passage, through death, Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You only have to take a momentary look at the majority of the justice systems around our world to know that death is considered as the ultimate deterrent. 
that is the nuclear option in the world of the justice system. And that came from the very beginning of human history where death was the curse under which humanity lived in penalty for breaking God's law in the garden. Humanity in the garden traded masters. They were God's servants, and that was a good thing. And they traded his easy yoke for the bondage of sin, which leads to death. In Romans 6, Paul asked the Roman church, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ, we no longer fear death because its sting has been replaced. The great sting of death was the finality that came with exacting the just penalty of sin. Upon death, humanity's payment comes due. My payment comes due. Your payment comes due upon death. That is the, the cutoff date. And the wages of sin is death. Not just temporary death, but death eternal. But to the believer, death should no longer be a source of fear. Paul goes so far as to say in Philippians 1, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. This is not a man who fears death and what's coming after it. That is a man that is living life eagerly awaiting a reunion with his Savior eyes ever on the finish line of his race here on earth. Continuing on our passage, the insertion of verse 16 in Hebrews 2 can kind of seem a little bit jarring and odd to many. The author inserts, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Reading through that, I'm, I'm going, well, why are we bringing angels back into this? We've spent the majority of chapters 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 kind of establishing, okay, Christ is superior to the angels and Christ is superior to the prophets and here we have angels and prophets coming back again. The author is taking time to re-emphasize the humanity of Christ in this passage. He wants to em emphasize that Christ wasn't a spirit. He wasn't an angel. He became flesh and blood to save flesh and blood. This concerns both how low he stooped and how high he was lifted up. He didn't just go from being 
eternal God of the universe to being an angel. He went all the way from the very top, eternal God of the universe to a servant, a slave, a humble flesh and blood human being. And he was glorified back far above the angels and he lifted mankind up with him as his brethren. And this mention of Christ helping the offspring of Abraham, for anyone who doesn't recognize this, is referring to the collected body of believers. This isn't talking about the nation of Israel. It is talking to the spiritual progeny of Abraham. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then finally, our author recaps much of what he just said in verses 17 and 18 of Hebrews chapter 2. In order to help the offspring of Abraham, Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I'm not going to probe too far into Christ's high priestly role today, both because we don't have time for a back-to-back sermon right now and also because I don't terribly want to poach from the message that, Lord willing, I'll eventually get to preach in Hebrews 4 where the author takes this and really blows it wide open. So know that we're going to be coming back to this when, Lord willing, I get to Hebrews 4. But today what I want to leave you with is a sense of the profound humanity of our Savior and a knowledge that this condescension, God coming down to redeem his creation, is totally in sync with his character. Indeed, as I was preparing this message, I found myself coming back to the text almost unable to believe what I was writing. For me to stand up here and tell you that Christ is my brother seems almost sacrilegious. I come back to what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him. What is Joshua Bateman that God is mindful of him? What is Joshua Bateman that the Lord cares for him? Insert your names into those questions from Hebrews chapter 2, 6. And when I looked at that passage, when I preached on it, honestly, we are nothing unless God has vested us with value. And vest us with value he has. Those whom the Father foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that Christ may be the firstborn among many brothers, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also has glorified. By grace, through faith, those who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts that God has raised him from the dead are saved. But we are not only freed from slavery to sin, we are adopted as brothers and sisters of the Son of God. If anyone among us, and I know they do, struggles with their worth as a person, 
I know that I have struggled, well, where is my value? And I know many of us here have struggled with that kind of thing. We need to read Hebrews chapter 2. The world tells us we need to find our worth in absolutely anything and everything else. Find our worth in how good we are at sports. Find our worth in how much money we make, how much respect we earn in our position or our profession. We are supposed to find our worth in our bank accounts. Literally anything other than what we are told in the word that we are to find our value in. But we are told to find our worth in our status as image bearers of God and as adopted children of the King of Kings. And where we find our worth, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. If we find our worth in any of the things that the world tells us we should find our worth in, that's where we're going to be pouring our, our heart and our effort and our, our will. But if we find our worth in the status as image bearers of the Most High God and as adopted children of the Most High God, well, that's where our treasure is and that's where we're going to pour in our, our effort. And recognize that this king of kings who has adopted us into, our, into his family is not some tyrannical despot of a king, but instead is the type who, if his subjects were lost and enslaved, particularly by their own sin, that he would send his own son as a substitutionary sacrifice to ransom them back that he may adopt them as sons and daughters. That is the character of our God. I want you to meditate on the fact that the character of our God is such that it is fitting for him to send his son. That is who he is. He is the God that would send his own son to redeemed, broken, useless vessels such as ourselves. And not just restore us back to base zero. He didn't just kind of cancel the debt and be like, okay, you can start over again, try better this time. He canceled our debt and then adopted us as his own children and made us co-heirs with the eternal son. If that doesn't change the way you live your life, if that doesn't affect where your treasure is, then nothing will. Would you meditate on that with me as we pray and as Sherry's team comes to lead us in a closing song? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Lord, by no work or value of our own are we able to be called sons and daughters of God. By no work or value of our own is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ happy to call us brothers and sisters. Lord, that is of you and from you. And Lord, that free gift of salvation that you have given us should completely change the way that we live. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be 
changed by the knowledge that we are adopted into your family. Lord, that we would find our treasure in you. That we would find our treasure in bearing your image into the whole world. Lord, that we would seek daily to spread your name wherever you go. Lord, we thank you for those among our mints here at Elk Point Baptist Church who are already actively engaged in sharing your gospel to the people around us. And God, that we would do it all the more as we see the rampant wickedness in our world, knowing that no amounts of social programs, no amount of government restructure, no amount of band-aids will fix the wound that is in our world, but that the only fix is the saving blood of Jesus Christ. That the only fix for our broken world is that they would know you and that they would be reconciled to you. They would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead before it's too late. For God, we know that each one of us will confess that one way or another. But Lord, that we might confess it before it's too late and live in light of that truth. Lord, we thank you for these things and for our time together this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.